From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Communities across the state are starting to lift mask mandates this week, but that doesn't mean ditching your mask completely just yet. I recognize that everybody's just exhausted by COVID and everybody's throwing their hands up and sort of feeling helpless because wave after wave comes. We'll talk through the latest science around masking, what's effective, and why keeping one handy remains key to the COVID fight. Then, as uncertainty looms in Ukraine, we'll talk with a Colorado man who's there and doesn't want to leave, what his work involves, and what he and everyday Ukrainians are saying about the tension. Plus, we'll meet a family who now calls Colorado home after fleeing Afghanistan and the challenges they and others face resettling. I lose my hope. I lose my fortune. I lose, I mean, everything. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. This week, some mask mandates are starting to go away in Colorado. That's true of Denver and Glenwood Springs, for example, along with Adams and Arapahoe counties. Mask mandates in Larimer County end February 12th. But does that mean you should light the proverbial bonfire and get rid of your masks altogether? Well, let's get some perspective on that now from Dr. May Chu. She's a clinical professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health. Dr. Chu, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Many health departments, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, still recommend people wear masks in crowded indoor settings, even though mandates are starting to go away. Case numbers are decreasing. We're hearing from public officials that Omicron has run its course. But what do you say from a medical perspective? Why is it still important to wear masks? Well, I think um, it's a great question that we struggle with every day. Uh, But I think that mask wearing and the other methods that we have used, like distancing, hand washing, and being outdoors as much as possible, has shown that it's effective to knock down uh, virus transmission. And the main goal here is to uh, knock that down so that we can others can be protected. And so the mask mandate is there because we are in periods of um, high transmission, which is what we're coming out of with Omicron, but we're not there yet, right? Because if you look at the curve of something that peaks and falls, 50% of the cases are on the upside and 50% on the downside. And because we're on the downside, we're still not at the bottom. So there's still transmission in the community, but less chance, but still there. And so thus, uh, you know, getting rid of the mask mandate is kind of getting us ready for as we lower transmission, it seems. Correct. But then the thing that you can see in England, for instance, which precedes us by about three weeks on the Omicron, that they released all their mask mandates and all the, so you know, all the uh, restrictions and opened up uh, about three weeks ago. Right now, the fall or on the falling side of that peak is that they've 
sort of what we called um, saddled or uh, have fallen halfway. And now they have mm. this shoulder of infections that are beginning to just plateau, but not going down anymore. So that's a risk we take, but it's a choice. It's a risk that we have to decide. And in some cases, it's not the science that is making those decisions anymore. It is other considerations. Well, a recent poll shows Americans are dealing with that choice, feeling COVID isn't going away entirely. There is now more of a trend showing Americans are ready to live with it for the long term. So what about the psychological stress here, the feeling of wanting to put the pandemic in the past? But like you say, the virus is still with us. How do everyday Coloradans square these things? Well, I think, you know, early on when we started the uh, in 2020, seems like ages ago, we just didn't know enough about the virus. So we put in some pretty uh, broad strokes of um, methods to make sure that we cover transmission. We're now into sort of beyond the vaccine phase, if you will, not beyond it, but we are past or the vaccine can help phase. And we're now in living with it phase, which is then dividing people up in what I call risk takers and risk averse people, given the same kind of um, exposure background. And so it, it becomes a more difficult decision. And it depends on where you are at, you know, it, it individual is, and also whether that individual as a risk adverse person might be more prone to helping others and take responsibility in being um, avoiding infection and masking. But the risk um, takers are ones that says, you know, enough is enough. And, uh, and they have a right to do that too. But what we have to do is be mindful where you are and what you want to practice. If someone is concerned about getting sick, when and where are the best places to wear a mask at this stage of the pandemic, knowing the Omicron variant is more contagious than Delta, but reportedly not as severe in its symptoms? So definitely what masks do are two things. The most important thing is what we in infection prevention control call uh, source protection. So that what happens is if you're feeling sick, you're not feeling well, and you think you might be infected or you have a positive antigen and PCR test, it is a very, very good idea to put a mask on, especially a more robust uh, you know, higher protective level mask on to prevent you from spreading it to others. And then if you are going into a situation where it's crowded, where you have no control on distancing, and there's still virus in the community, you want to put a mask on and preferably a good mask on that fits well so that you don't breathe in anything that might infect you. So I think those are, you know, so you have to make those choices and considerations. Well, let's turn to the masks themselves. Um, what is the latest science in, term of their, in terms of their effectiveness? I've seen reports that do-it-yourself cloth masks aren't as effective these days and recommendations that an N95 or KN95 mask is really the way to go. Can you clarify the research and the thinking on that? Certainly. Uh, so N95, which is what we call a respirator class, is uh, under strict um, CDC and FDA regulations that 
prescribes exactly what the filtration capability is and what the fit needs to be because those are worn by those with the highest risk in the hospitals dealing with patients in what we call aerosol generating procedures. And you have to wear those. And it is the filtration and the fit and there is regulations on that. Secondary to that are surgical masks, which are the lighter ones that you've seen, which are the rectangular ones that you might have seen, those are then rated at 70%. So N95 is 95% uh, blockage, um, 70%. And then beyond that, in the community, there's actually sort of a wild west. And um, <laughs> the filtration can go from zero to 70 to 90%. And the fit is somewhere really good fit to no fit at all, very loose. So there are new standards that the um, CDC is working with so that new here for going forward, there is a standard called the 35, ASTM 3502 that prescribes the community mask that we wear to be as good as the surgical mask, which is 70% blockage, and then it has it. to fit, right? Right. Well, so well I, I want to talk about that. That's I, I want to talk about that seal, you know, because, you know, with these cloth masks, I, I, I see like maybe things bunching up around the cheeks or things like that. Are you saying that those masks just aren't effective anymore? Well, they are effective. So anything is better than nothing. It, it blocks it. something. But the amount of fit or the reduction of leakage around the face on that, the less leakage, the better, right? So that it's forcing the air through the mask material as opposed to just, you know, coming out all over. And so the we recommended, you know, fit by perhaps you've seen that where they've recommended wearing two masks. The two masks is right. not really necessarily better filtration. It just pulls the second one closer to your face so that it reduces oh, the seal. It creates They're that also, seal. Yeah, it creates a better seal. Then there are also uh, things that you, uh, items you can buy now that are called braces so that you have a loose mask, but you can actually buy a brace that essentially ties it to the back of your head so that it fits better, so that it seals it better. So it's really the material of the mask that has to be dense enough to block enough air so that you only breathe through it and it has a filtration a capability of reducing the by percentage how much you can you breathe in and out there and then the second piece is fitting it around your face so you have less leak if you put glasses on and you have a mask on and your glasses fog up you're leaking I see, and that was one of my questions. If if you see fog in your glasses, maybe it's you have to tighten that seal. Now, right. is that That's concern it. both for the wearer as well as the person you might come in contact with that seal and and seeing that fog in yes. your glasses? Yes, both of both both sides because one can exhale and the other one can inhale, right? And so you want to sort of block that. Do, do you think, plan you know, to keep? Uh, sorry, one of ahead. the things I want to show is that, you know, for instance, like when you play football, recently you've seen those, and where uh, players are, you know, having their breath being seen because it's so cold, you can see the mingling of those air streams. And so that's what you're trying to prevent. If you put a mask on, then that mingling is reduced. 
Uh, two, two quick questions as we wrap up here. Are there outdoor settings where it's still recommended to wear a mask? Yes, I think exactly what I just described. If you're close quarters to someone, it, there's lots of yelling and shouting, you know, a lot of joy. But the fact is that when you see how the air plumes mix and you are then involved in breathing other people's air and or you are contributing to it, that's when you need to wear a mask if you cannot distance. And then final question, Will you uh, continue wearing a mask when you're out in public? And is there a time that you may say, I, I won't do that anymore? I will continue to wear a mask because I think the I'm a risk adverse person. And also because we have uh, vulnerable persons in our family and close contacts that I do not want to harm. And so I will continue to wear a mask. And I think for me, Masks are here to stay, and there are certain conditions when I'm outside by myself or you know, distance from others, but enjoying, let's say, a game of tennis, I can have my mask off because I'm not in somebody else's space, if you know what I mean. I do. Dr. Chu, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your perspective. Okay. Thank you for having me. Dr. Mei Chu is a clinical professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health. We want to note some communities, like Boulder County, still have mask mandates in place. Individual school districts, government facilities, and businesses may also continue to require masks indoors for the foreseeable future, even if mandates go away. So be sure to check where you live to make sure you know the latest guidance. When we come back, we talk with a Colorado man who's in Ukraine about the ongoing uncertainty and why he isn't ready to leave. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The U.S. continues diplomatic efforts to head off armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Russia has moved 100,000 troops or more to the border there, increasing fears of an invasion. And just this morning, it was announced President Biden is sending additional U.S. military personnel to Eastern Europe in the coming days. In the midst of all of this is a Colorado professor who has worked in Ukraine since 2015, but not in a political capacity. Josh Kramer is a professor in the Department of Counseling and Family Therapy at Regis University in Denver. He's in Ukraine now and is here to give us a sense of the atmosphere there. Professor, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So many Americans and other foreign nationals have left the country. Uh, why have you stayed for so long? So I have a contract at present with the United Nations International Office on Migration and I was tasked with coming over here to train psychologists in effective trauma therapy skills for military individuals, couples, and families. And in addition to these trainings, I've done two retreats, uh, experiential uh, retreats for these military families that have served here in Ukraine. So that was the mission that I was tasked with, and that's what I've been doing since uh, actually December, mid-December. Yeah. And you wanted to stay. You wanted to finish what you were working on. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 
I, I know you're you're not here to give us a history or political lesson, lesson, but can you give us a sense of what Russia is doing and, and what Ukrainians fear day to day? Sure. So there's definitely um, the annexation of Crimea is one thing. There is a troop buildup at the border, as everybody knows. And there's a lot of uh, political wrangling that's happening within the country. Um, so we've been monitoring all of that. Uh, everybody here uh, reads the news every day. I, I go into my training and I see people always trying to stay up to date with what's going on. But this has been going on for them for eight years with the most current uh, iteration of what's been going on. So I feel like there's a, a very high tolerance for what's going on on the street, the average yeah. citizen here. Right. I mean, you, you, like you said, Ukraine has dealt with a tense political atmosphere for many years, including that uprising in 2013 and 2014, where protesters filled the streets for many months and some were brutally gunned down and the Russia annex, uh, annexation of Crimea that followed. Um, yes. You were saying that it's kind of a that it's just a, a thing that, that Ukrainians are dealing with. Is, is that uncertainty healthy, do you think? I'm not sure. You know, there's there's two different psychological perspectives on it that at one, you know, life must go on. If people live in fear and run around like the sky is falling, you know, is that healthy? Um, and at the same time, you know, is it healthy to not fully recognize the levity of the situation? So um, I think they strike that balance um, well because um, it's been going on for so long and it seems like it's just been a stalemate. Uh, in many ways. So tie this all to the work that you're doing there. In, in terms of mental health, um, how are you impacting what's going on there with the people that you're working with? Sure. So I've been working since 2015. I've been part of a team that has been trying to help um, raise the standards of psychological care, specifically for trauma therapy. There's just been this history of trauma. We call it generational trauma uh, in the field in this part of the world with wars and conquests going back and forth across uh, this part of the world. Um, so we, we initially were asked to come after the events of 2013 and 2014 uh, by a church. That was the first contact we had to come and train lay people there in how to help people more effectively. It was a, it was kind of a general call to arms. Uh, so we sent a team. I was not a part of that first team. I came soon after that. And it just became apparent that the mental health providers here were uh, wanting more. They were wanting more uh, skills and more um, the, the capacity to more effectively treat uh, trauma and specifically the impact of war that has a ripple effect through the family systems and society. I, I I read that there is a sense of stoicism from people in the in Ukraine and, and people in Russia, where there is a fear to talk about mental health. I mean, how do you see the years of conflict affecting mental health there? When you couch it in the idea that reaching out to someone in a white coat might not be the best idea. Yeah, they even have a, a phrase for this. They say kamenoyalitsa, which means stone face. And it's, you know, uh, a cultural moray that's there. And you see it and you feel it. As an American, it can be difficult to fit in on the streets. I, I smile a lot and uh, I've learned to, I, I, I pick up the stone face as a way of 
being in, in the culture here. So the, how it ties into psychology, um, I actually did my dissertation here in Ukraine and I studied the history of mental health in Ukraine. And what was surprising to me was there were several articles that talked about how psychology had been weaponized in Soviet times, that it wasn't just a stigma or an aversion to, to psychology, it was actually used as a weapon in many ways. People wow. feared it. You know, if you went to a mental hospital, uh, psychology, which is meant to help, was used to harm. Uh, so it's even more of, of an issue here that there's this historic history and historical memory of what psychology was. So we've we've been doing work on that too, kind of on a societal level to try to help reduce the stigma uh, for reaching out for help. I, I know it probably will take a long time to explain that, but briefly, how do you break through that wall, that stoicism, that it's okay to talk about the stress you're feeling about everything going on right now? Sure. So I, I feel like a, a big way to do this is to start getting people connected with uh, psychological and counseling and mental health type experiences that challenge the irrational belief that it's it's not okay to get help and it's not effective and it's uh, people wearing a white coat and if you share something, we're going to give you that jacket that makes you hug yourself. Um, whatever people think, um, one of the ways uh, the front lines that I'm, I'm on is offering these retreats for military families and it's a very accessible thing for them. We have um, food, we bring them out somewhere, uh, we feed them and we take care of the whole family. And through the process, we've had feedback from veterans and their families that very clearly they, they've said things such as, before this retreat, I would have not have ever talked to a psychologist here, but now I'm gonna make a follow-up appointment with one of the Ukrainian psychologists that I've met at this retreat. So we've seen that be great. And then I've told them at the end of the retreat, I've said, hey, please go out and talk to other military veterans and their families and tell them about this. So that's just a really grassroots way uh, to do things. And then I've, I've tried to get some ideas into uh, people's hands here about you know, a broader societal level uh, campaigns, possibly. No. Yeah. From an everyday life standpoint, what is your daily life like? Are you able to to walk around like like everything is fine, or or is that 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 tension that you're seeing because of what's happening right on the border? I'd say in general, it's not any different than other times I've been here. This is roughly my twentieth trip here. I've stayed here from one week to three months, and honestly, I don't see a lot of difference. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis. I did inadvertently walk through a protest uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, there was actually thousands of people in this one square and I heard them what sounded to me like angrily chanting something. I asked a friend of mine when I got to my destination what was going on and, and they explained that it wasn't even related to what was going on on the front as they call it here, uh, the front lines. Uh, it was some other political thing that I didn't quite understand but uh, I noticed that. And then another time I was going to my training, which uh, I'm conducting these trainings down on Maidan, where the events of 2013 and 14 happened. I walked through a police line. They had some armed police that were dealing with a smaller protest there. That was related to um, what what's going on currently. Um, so other than those two times where I've, I've not seen that on a regular occurrence and other trips, I've noticed that. 
Uh, but yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I feel safe, secure, walking around. Buildings are not on fire anywhere where I'm at. And there are things happening on the front, uh, but not in the capital. Yeah. Do, do people talk about what they'll do in case there is an invasion of any kind? They do. Yeah. Many people have talked about their plan. They said that when things happened before, when there's been other incursions into uh, the country or, or different things, when they've had to move from the regions in the east and become internally displaced persons, uh, they, a couple people I've talked to had said, hey, we thought we would just be gone for a couple of weeks. They packed a small bag. They did not expect this to be going on eight years later. And they've had to make uh, trips back into the occupied spaces to grab their things. So, mm. you know, people have been more savvy to that and said, hey, we're, we're not going to be caught unprepared this time if things get worse. So people have made uh, plans, seems like more this time. And and I, I should note that you know people who've gone to the border to protect the country, right? Is that happening a lot more? I do. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people. Um, it's very interesting because I think from an American standpoint, we'd think it's fairly colonial in the way many people here have responded. There's people that will just show up at the front, whether it's to fight or to support those that are fighting. So they've had a lot of volunteers, they call them, that have just done these things. And most recently, the country has started to develop regional uh, brigades and battalions uh, for a common defense. So it's kind of it kind of makes me think of the, the Revolutionary War in America. They're calling together these militias and uh, churches and community events or community groups, excuse me, are also rallying in, in their ways. So they're they're very prepared. Everybody here seems to feel like they're more prepared this time. If things do go south or sideways, they're more prepared now than they were before. And just briefly, because we have to wrap up here, do you have any concerns that you may not be able to leave at this point? Uh, I do not. Uh, I'm supposed to be leaving on Monday. Everything looks good. I've had a couple other people that I know that have left here recently, as recently as two days ago. Uh, so I'm monitoring everything very closely. I do also have a, a plan uh, if needed. I've got good people to take care of me and hope to be home within the week. Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks. Thank you. Josh Kramer is professor in the Department of Counseling and Family Therapy at Regis University in Denver. He trains people to work in mental health. He joined us from Ukraine to give us a sense of the political and personal happenings there and the nature of his work. Now we're going to introduce you to two families, one with a big need and another who stepped in to help. The first is among the 80,000 people who were able to flee to the U.S. after the American military withdrew from Afghanistan. The other is the family they turned to for help when they reached Colorado. Denverite's Kevin Beatty has the story of these two families brought together by these historic circumstances. Most mornings, Gretchen Sheverton wakes up to at least 100 friend requests on Facebook. Sometimes two or 300. Almost all of them are from Afghanistan, from people who have been trying to leave since August. Like, it won't load fast enough for me to scroll through them for you to see thousands and thousands of messages. More than 10 years ago, Sheverton's brother was a soldier in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. And when U.S. troops started to withdraw, he worked from afar to evacuate his former colleagues. Word spread that he could help, 
And soon, someone listed his name and information online as a resource, and then Cheverton's too. Overnight, messages started to flood their inboxes. Contact me. The Taliban are oppressing me. I want to leave Afghanistan. Please help me. Uh, this one says, my life and my family are in danger. I and my family are in hiding. I need the your foreign help forces has left us behind, and our country is caught back by terrorist Taliban. And they are searching for I me. I would be much appreciated me. if you are to look into my situation, and my life can be protected. Looking forward to hearing from you. Yours faithfully. Sheverton says most people she knows have stopped paying attention to Afghanistan, though the U.S. withdrawal left many people stranded as the Taliban began to root out those who worked with Western forces. She tries to respond to as many messages as she can. Then she passes the names of those who qualify onto her brother, who sends them to a friend in the State Department. Sheverton can't help most of the people who contact her on social media. If we only got one person out, it would be worth it. Um, but yeah, it takes a big toll. I have dreams about this, and I have nightmares about this, and they're pleading with me to save their lives. It's, it wears on me. Back in December, Sheverton finally got a chance to make a real difference. It's late on a cold night at Denver International Airport. Inside, Sheverton waits to welcome a family that's arrived from Afghanistan. I hold my breath every time more people are coming on. She and her husband offered to take this family in, to open their home to them. I'm so happy to meet you. Are you ready to go home? The family includes two young kids, their mom and dad. They're strangers to Sheverton, but she doesn't treat them like it. She quickly takes the six-year-old boy by the hand and leads the family to their luggage. She stops at a giant map of the U.S. inside the airport and points out Denver. Her guests are a long way from home. I lose many things in there. I lose my hope. I lose my fortune. I lose... I mean, everything. That's the dad who we're calling M to protect his family back home. There, he worked with NATO. And that job allowed him to come to the U.S., but it also put a target on his back. He's grateful that he made it out. Now, I'm not worried about my family. I'm not worried about my safety. I was just thinking that I, I would lose my family as well, but personally, I came here. Only people who work directly with Western militaries are eligible to resettle in the U.S., but M was one of very few who actually made it out during the chaotic evacuation last fall. He managed to connect online with Sheverton's brother, the one who served in Kabul, who got M on an evacuation list and got him in touch with Sheverton when they arrived in the U.S. Sipping tea inside Gretchen Sheverton's house, M says he's grateful to have a cozy place to stay while he searches for a home of his own. But Afghanistan is still very much on his mind. The U.S. occupation was complicated in a lot of ways, but it did provide stability. During these years, I was really happy. I was always thinking that I could make a better life for my families. I hoped that we could make Afghanistan better. And then, as we talk, a letter arrives. Oh, my God. This is my social security. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really so happy. A social security card means he can begin to look for work, save up, and someday move his family out of Sheverton's home. His new life is beginning, but he and Sheverton both know there are so many more people hoping to leave Afghanistan and do the same. I'm Kevin Beatty, Denverite.
For the tens of thousands of Afghans who fled to the U.S. when the Taliban took over, resettling here comes with many challenges. We heard about one family that's been welcomed into a Denver home while they search for their own place to live. Denverite's Kevin Beatty has more now on the obstacles facing refugees who are desperate to find new homes. When American troops pulled out of Afghanistan last fall, M knew he was in danger. The Taliban had taken Kabul, and they searched for people like him who had worked with Western forces. They were saying that we will know who had done job with the U.S. We can recognize them by their friends, relatives. M worked for NATO, so he feared for his life and for his families. That's why we're not using his full name. He even burned his personal documents so the Taliban wouldn't find them. M then spent two days trying to board a plane with his wife and two young children. They couldn't get through the massive crowds of people rushing to do the same. The people left everything. And after that, everything was changed. All the people were going to the Kabul airport. Many, many people lost their life, lost their families, lost their kids. They would have to wait and find another way out. And they did. Now they're living in Denver with an American family that's taken them in as they restart their lives. M connected with this family online after the U.S. left Afghanistan. They had connections to the State Department, so they were able to help get M's family on a plane out of Kabul and resettled in Denver. But it took a few months. The story of this family is miraculous in a lot of ways, but uh, the biggest is that they, they are really the outlier at this point. That's U.S. Representative Jason Crow of Colorado. The number of eligible Afghans is in the tens of thousands, and a very, very small number of those have been able to leave since. The former Army Ranger served in Afghanistan and has been trying to get people out of that country. Official pathways to evacuate closed when the U.S. left. So Crow says many Afghans are using social media to ask for help with nowhere else to turn. Yeah, people are working multiple angles, and that, that should not be the way that it is. There, of course, should be a more defined equitable process, but that has not yet been able to be implemented. For now, a lot of people who did get here are still waiting for permanent homes. The U.S. first put refugees on military bases when they arrived, and that includes M, whose family lived in a tent city at a base in New Jersey. When we came to New Jersey, there are maybe 16,000 Afghan in there just waiting for their paperwork. People like him, without friends or family to stay with, have had to wait for nonprofits to resettle them, and a national housing shortage has slowed that process. Linda Foster, CEO of Jewish Family Service of Colorado, works with resettlement agencies to find places for refugees to live. You know, the goal is to get them out of those transitional housing situations within 30 days. And can we do that? I don't know. Those in the Denver area face stiff competition alongside everyone else looking for a home here right now. And recent wildfires have made the market even tighter. Foster said she had leads on about 100 affordable units in the Denver metro. And at all those locations, there's only four vacancies. I worry. That is the biggest and hardest piece of it. That brings us back to M, who got really lucky. After waiting and waiting on the military base in New Jersey, he reached back out to the Army veteran who had helped his family evacuate Afghanistan. That man told his sister about M, and she invited the family to stay with her in Denver. Do you want to practice saying it again? I need to go to the bathroom. That's the only thing you need to know today. Inside the home they now share... Gretchen Cheverton helps M get his son ready for his first day of kindergarten. All of their lives are now on a new trajectory. It was a big support for my family that I will not forget for my life. But M thinks a lot about his relatives who are still in Afghanistan hiding from the Taliban. He hopes he'll be able to get them out at some point, 
even though he knows that day could be years away. I'm Kevin Beatty, Denverite. You can see Kevin's photo essay of M and his family and read about their story at denverite.com and in today's Colorado Matters podcast. When we come back on the same day the Broncos go up for a sale, a lawsuit claims racism in the NFL, including with team leadership. We'll get perspective from a former Broncos player. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. In a lawsuit filed Tuesday that's rocking the NFL, former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores says racism against fellow black head coaches is pervasive in the league. Flores also claims leadership of the Denver Broncos engaged in racism in what he says was a, quote, sham interview with the team back in 2019, the year the Broncos hired former head coach Vic Fangio. Here to give us more context around this lawsuit is former offensive tackle and Super Bowl champion Ryan Harris. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. For a Broncos fan, this must seem like complete whiplash. I mean, yesterday fans were celebrating the official announcement that the team was up for sale and the possibility of a fresh start with new head coach Nathaniel Hackett. However, by the afternoon, this lawsuit naming Broncos leadership, including President Joe Ellis and former GM John Elway comes out. What are your initial thoughts? Well, I think with Brian Flores, if everything comes out to be true, um, that he's doing something courageous. And if it's not turning out to be true, uh, he'll probably face some lawsuits in return. There are some very damaging allegations. And most shocking of all, uh, honestly, is the fact that he was asked to lose games and uh, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, Stephen Ross, was being offering $100,000 to do so. So Absolutely. If you're the Broncos front office, I'm sure you're shocked at what happened. And the Broncos responded and said, you know, they met with um, Brian Flores at 730 a.m. sharp on January 5th, 2019, and met for three and a half hours. And they have documents to prove it. So, you know, Brian Flores has made some very damaging accusations that have touched a lot of teams in the NFL. And unfortunately, uh, the Broncos are going to have to continue to defend themselves here as the case continues. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. The Broncos released a statement yesterday afternoon calling the allegations of racism, quote, blatantly false. Now, a lot of this lawsuit centers around something called the Rooney Rule. That's a mechanism created by the NFL in which teams hiring for high-profile positions like head coach or general manager have to interview candidates of color. Here's Flores on CBS Mornings Today speaking about that rule. I think what it's turned into is um, an instance where guys are just checking the box. Um, and that's been the case. I've been on some interviews in the past that, um, where that's, I've had that feeling. There's you know, always no way to, to, to know for sure, but, um, but you know. Ryan, is this lawsuit an indication that the rule isn't working as intended? I mean, there have been other candidates who've said they too were only interviewed to, quote, check a box and fulfill that requirement. Well, particularly as it pertains to the Giants head coach hiring, they interviewed Brian Flores the afternoon before the next morning they announced their head coach. So that's one of those timelines where you say, 
whose story does this prove? Does this prove the NFL side and the Giants side that they really did take seriously Brian Flores' interview? Or is it Brian Flores' side who says, how can you bring me in for a serious interview and name a coach within hours the next morning? So um, these are going to be things that have to be documented and played out in court. And unfortunately, yes, there are some coaches uh, who have been box checkers for four teams. I mean, I played against Gerard Mayo, who was a head coaching candidate, who the Broncos interviewed. And you're talking about a linebackers coach who had two years of coaching. You really believe he's ready for a head coaching position? I hope he is, but that seems pretty illogical. And where you'll get into trouble with the law is if you are not seriously interviewing a candidate per your hiring guidelines. And that's where Brian Flores will have an opportunity to prove his case. For context with the Broncos interview in 2019, um, that included leadership, uh, including Ellis and Elway. The lawsuit states the pair were late for the interview and, quote, looked completely disheveled, and it was obvious that they had been drinking heavily the night before. In their statement, as you've said, the Broncos say our process was thorough and fair to determine the most qualified candidate for our head coaching position. Does that track with you? Given that Fangio's predecessor, Vance Joseph, was black. Let me say this. I believe Joe Ellis to be one of the most upstanding characters in our community. Uh, That would be very out of character in my experience with Joe Ellis. And again, this is something that can easily be proven, right? If if this case gets to discovery, what are the receipts the night before at at a restaurant? Um, Did John Elway actually show up late? And if he didn't, and the Broncos are absolutely saying, hey, this is without merit. So this is something that will be proven. And unfortunately, uh, you know, especially Joe Ellis just got awarded the Mizell Leadership Award for our community and his work uh, as as the head of that trust for the Broncos. So what Brian Flores alleged about the 2019 interview would be out of line with my experience with John Elway and especially Joe Ellis. Um, but that does not mean that Brian Flores is lying. And it could very well mean at the same time the Broncos are telling the truth. It's just murky and it's tough in this situation mm-hmm. because – you know, when somebody comes up with a case like this, we, you know, the best thing to say is, I believe you. Um, and really, it's tough to, if you're the Broncos, to say, I believe you, because you're saying, hey, you're alleging we did some things that we didn't do. But somebody is lying, and whoever's lying should be punished to the full extent of the law. What are the reactions from other Broncos or other players in the league that you've been hearing? Well, I mean, players want to find out if it's true or not, right? Especially the part of, Um, an owner paying money to lose. And Hugh Jackson also came out and said that as he was a head coach, his owner wanted him to lose. And he has text messages proving that as well. Because as a player, you're saying, wait a second, I'm going out there and risking my entire livelihood um, every single game. And if you want us to lose, you know, this is, this is, you're discrediting the game. You're creating uh, a problem when it comes to the actual art and the, and the gift that is this game. Additionally, if you're a player and you're on the Miami Dolphins, you're saying, hey, either pay me a max contract right now or let me go somewhere. So you put in this. So this lawsuit puts the Dolphins in a bind. If you're a player, this comes out to be true. You say, well, if you don't want to win, you better pay me all the money that uh, I'm earning. I can earn. And by the way, if you don't want to win, you can also let me go. So players are confused. And I think everyone in the NFL is shocked at the revelation that owners, in fact, may have been tanking their teams in the NFL, something the NFL has prided itself on not doing with its organizations. 
And just to note, Hugh Jackson is the former coach of the Cleveland Browns. Didn't want to cut you off there before I said that. Um, In a statement about the lawsuit, the NFL says, quote, diversity is core to everything we do. But in the same statement, they proclaim Flores' allegations were, quote, without merit. What does it say for an organization to put that out rather than perhaps at least saying the claims were disturbing and, and would, you know, warrant further investigation? Well, that's what, what's surprising to me is that the NFL would add this is without merit, especially considering the recent history that they have had with players alleging collusion in the NFL. And then even last year, Eugene Chung, a, head, a coaching candidate, somebody I played for, a brilliant coach, um, was told by a team owner that he was not the right minority for the hire. So the part of that statement mm-hmm. that I don't get from the NFL is the this is without merit. Uh, I think anybody paying attention to the NFL would realize that this is a constant problem that's really been going on since the 80s when Congress actually interviewed uh, members of the NFL to clear up their hiring issues. And and also they have done some good things to get other people of color in key roles. There are more people of color now in front office positions than ever before. And hopefully that's a trend that continues as the product on the field has 70% African-American athletes. Right. And, you know, Flores says in a statement, quote, my sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive changes made for generations to come. Uh, how often do black players talk about that discrepancy you're noting in the locker room? And, and how often did white players participate in those conversations while you were in a locker room? You know, it's, it's the most known untalked about conversation in the NFL. I mean, Every player, white or black, could tell you brilliant coaches that they played with that for some reason never got an opportunity to be a head coach. And the majority of those coaches are people of color. So when you're a player and you're with a brilliant coach who's doing things right, helping you win, helping you succeed, you wonder, how is this coach not a head coach? How has this guy been a position coach for 20 years when underqualified coaches like a Joe Judge who just got fired from the Uh, New York Giants how do these guys get roles but some of the great coaches in the NFL don't so you're left to be curious and the mind comes up with only a few answers that explain why brilliant coaches wouldn't make the natural progression to either a front office or a a head coaching position and it's just been something that's known in the NFL it's not talked about but it's something that's absolutely recognized as you're sitting in a you know how is it that the front office looks so different than this team when this team's going to win a Super Bowl in the yeah. case that we did in Super Bowl 50. Players notice that. And it, everybody at their it, office place, you notice your diversity too, right? I mean, so this is something human. This is something that all of us are going through at the workplace. And this is something that on the whole as a society, we need to get better at including people of color in key positions that help you make more money, grow your your fan base, grow your profit base. Think about the first you know, bank that said, say, habla espanol. I bet you they made more money than anybody else. So the proof is in the pudding and the data that diversity helps increase profits. But we have to be better as a community at doing this. And the NFL is no different. So where does this go from here? I mean, do you think this is the beginning of some soul searching like you're hoping for, uh, for the NFL and for possibly the Broncos? Or or what if this lawsuit doesn't go forward? Are we back to, to the same old, same old? I believe this will end in a um, an agreement or some type of you know resolution without going to court. The NFL is a billion dollar business. This is a distraction. They want this to go away. So if whether it's a settlement or something of that nature, the last thing the NFL wants are text messages 
uh, and emails of its owners and its and its GMs becoming public record. I mean, uh, John Gruden says hello, right? I mean, the Washington football teams, that was one team's uh, audit of their emails, and it cost somebody $60 million. So the NFL will want this to stop. Uh, but this could also get bigger than Brian Flores. If there are other coaches who feel that they've been treated in a similar manner, uh, he's filing with a class action option. And if that gets approved, then you may see two, three, ten other coaches come in and say, yeah, I have examples as well. And that becomes a bigger problem for the NFL and increases the likelihood of a settlement, in my opinion, as well. Ryan, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ryan Harris is a former Bronco offensive tackle and Super Bowl champion. He's currently a host on Altitude Sports Radio and an analyst of NFL broadcasts on the Westwood One radio network. We'll leave you today with music from Neoma. The indie rock band is led by singer-songwriter Carla Wiracosta, who started her music career in Ecuador. She eventually traded the Andes for the Rockies, relocating to Denver in 2018. So when I moved to Denver, I started to realize that, of course, writing in English, it was better for me in my creative process. How I express emotions and things sometimes are different with another language and I feel like English is such a melodic language for me to write. I just wanted to my music to find something beyond what was in Ecuador. Neoma is currently at work on her on their second album. In the meantime, here they are with the track Young, recorded live at last year's Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Don't take me home. Don't wanna do this alone. Remember when you were young, this used to hurt. Baby, this is out of control. You can't deny my love. Remember when you were young, this used to hurt. But you can stay if you wanna, if you wanna. Or you can take me out, take me out of the style. But you can stay if you wanna, if you wanna. Or you can take me out, take me out of this style. I was about to tell you last night, maybe we should head out. Remember when you were young, though we so alone. I can't get you out of my mind. This is a time of that. Remember when you were young, don't think so much. But you can't stay if you wanna, if you wanna. Or you can take me out. Thanks for joining us today. And to the Colorado Matters team who keeps us on beat Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks so much.